0: Hey there podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host Terry Yuan. Welcome to the fourth episode of Engendered Reflections, where we look back on our series of family court episodes with a guest. My friend Michael is here with us today to join in that conversation. Currently, Michael leads a workforce development program at a New York City community-based organization. He trains youth and young adults in building job skills and assists them with finding and retaining long-term employment. Michael and I used to work together serving vulnerable and economically disadvantaged populations in New York City, and we share that common lens of understanding of how gender and intimate partner violence serve as barriers to achieving education and or professional success. Welcome, Michael. Hello. So we're looking back today at four episodes, the episodes on domestic violence and trauma and the impact of domestic violence on children which is episodes 18 with Laura Fernandez, the Mm -hmm. clinical director at Sanctuary for Families. Episode 19 with Lisa Fischel-Walovic, an attorney, former social worker, whose book, Traumatic Divorce and Separation, just came out this past spring. And two survivor stories, one with Rosara Torres-Thomas, who was a survivor of a relationship with a police officer and author of the book, Abuse Hidden Behind the Badge. And finally, a survivor story with Jordan about the intersection of power and religion, who talks about his fundamentalist Christian upbringing. Right. So let's start with Laura Fernandez, clinical director at Sanctuary for Families. Sanctuary is one of the largest agencies and advocates for survivors of domestic violence and gender-based violence in New York City.
1: So one of the things that just popped into my head when I was listening to it was all the different ways that children can act out because of domestic violence and how the impact is just there from early childhood until when they grow up because they can be affected in such intense ways that it's just... Terrible for the whole family, not just the children, but to the mother as well. And how would a mother have to handle a child who is acting out because of it?
0: Yeah, I, I think Laura, when she spoke about sanctuary services, touched upon how they offer group counseling and family therapy between the survivor and the child. And I was happy to hear First, it's great that they're trauma informed.
1: That's right in their, in their approach to what they're taking on, right? And that's one of the things that I find admirable to be able to to do something about that, to to have at least some power and some influence in the community. One of the things that I also thought about while I was listening to this is the power of of making some social change. It it, it seems to come slow. I was listening to a Freakonomics radio and uh, one of the episodes talked about how social movements happen, starting from back in the day when they were discussing women's rights and, and other rights. So all of these came really slowly and there seems to be a strategy about going to it. So like they have to make sure one of the things that they mentioned and basically one of the things that they suggested is to focus on one issue and And keep your message clear. if the message is clear, then it's more likely to have an effect on the general overall opinion and but this is not something that that's just going to happen from day one. It's, it's something that people have to become aware of. The message has to be clear and under, people have to understand what these issues are. So I don't think the general population knows a lot about domestic violence and, and, and the underlying causes and issues and the effects. So I, 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 I feel that it's a great opportunity for people to, to learn this. And if the people that are in charge of of handling these service aren't aren't informed. Then the message isn't going to be clear. So I'm glad that the message is clear, at least from what I heard of, of what Laura said.
0: Yeah, and and to that point, I think a lot of our guests have touched upon when they're talking about having one parent that's an abuser and a quote unquote protective parent. That it's better to have one parent that's safe and nurturing than to have one parent that's safe and nurturing and an abusive parent. Because there's that myth that that children need both parents, right. and in particular the father. And I know Barry Goldstein talks about that a lot. And I wanted to share this quote by Bell Hooks mm-hmm. from one of her books. I think it's the book All About Love, where she says, quote, abused children have been taught that love can coexist with abuse. This shapes our adult perceptions of love as we would cling to the notion that those who hurt us as children loved us, we rationalize being hurt by other adults by insisting that they love us. Wow. And so I think that's, unquote, and that's a very powerful kind of recognition that what you're imprinting on a child in terms of what's acceptable behavior, right. what's def- what's defined as quote unquote love will actually determine your child's future
1: relationships. Right. You also touched upon that in the podcast when you were when they when she mentioned the whole Julia Roberts pretty woman thing where basically you have this myth like, oh, well, this is what the sex worker deals with. And you get a man and then he'll save you. And then it, and it's like this wonderful story uh, that that's portrayed on the movie. But that's that's not how life is. I'm pretty sure that's not how life is as a, as a sex worker. And that myth is just so harmful. It kind of brings upon uh, the conversation we had on the last reflection session when uh, we were talking about the media and the influence that it has on us. But yes, I it, it, it's something that is ingrained to you as a child, and it's it's just it's just so so powerful in its effect that it has on on on. On society in general,
0: yeah, and I think um the myth that you're referring to is actually called, there's actually a name for it. There it's is. called the Cinderella myth, oh, it basically embodies this narrative that um, women number one need to be saved mm-hmm. and that men are the ones to do it, right, and certainly by setting up that dichotomy, you are producing the narrative of power differentials in the relationship and minimizing or silencing the possibility that women have their own agency to oh, save themselves.
1: Right, right. That they need
0: to be even saved to begin with. Right. And certainly all of us, as you know, we talked about in, in previous episodes with Alan Corbin about male allyship and feminism,
1: mm-hmm.
0: all of us suffer from living under a male supremacist patriarchal, structure.
1: Right.
0: But the way that women suffer is more disempowering in our relationships, I think on a day-to-day level
1: while that myth is is pretty prevalent in our in our society don't i i do think i i would like to think that slowly slowly but very slowly we 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 are changing that I, i do think that the media is aware of that cinderella myth and how they they try to subvert it in some of the media like for example disney is is one that is very guilty of doing this with with most of their disney films but not too long ago they had a frozen. And I think that's a step in the right direction. I don't think frozen is perfect, but it wasn't circled around the man saving, saving the day.
0: Well, I didn't actually watch that film. Okay. I know it was very popular. Was the character a princess in any way? I'm curious (laughs) because still, if you're, if you're using that princess trope, Mm-hmm. I think it brings up a lot there's a lot of historical significance. Okay. It's loaded with assumptions about a girl's delicacy, of a prince who will come to save her, you know, of being angelic and pure.
1: Okay. And white.
0: And yeah. so there's a lot of I think implicit expectation.
1: I didn't say I didn't say it was perfect. Like I said, it's not something that is an issue that's going to be fixed right away. I I'm hoping that us as a society Together we're, we're we're taking a step in the in the right direction. Look, we have the Me Too movement now that that I believe is also a step in the right direction. I, I, I think with this these this the horrible political climate that we're living in, the bright side is that there's a pushback. People are not just standing there and, 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 and taking it. You have you have a voice in Twitter that people now Twitter is a tool now that can be used for people to to speak out and and a lot of people can can have uh, can 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 support your voice and and, and, and amplify that. It, it, this is not something that's just happening. While I, I'm not saying that it's it's perfect. It's not all doom and gloom. I, I, I'm I'm just trying to take a look at the bright side of the mm-hmm. of the equation here.
0: So, what about the post separation power and control wheel? The regular power and control wheel and the abusive children wheel, were those new to you? Were those tools, the power and control that you had been exposed
1: to before? I have been exposed to it, but actually I have been exposed to it thanks to you back in the past. Uh, for those of you listening, if you haven't heard before, we used to work together. And and yes, the, the, that that is something that I was exposed to several years ago. But recently I have seen it in uh, other conversations that are work-related when we do Talk about healthy relationships to our population. We we do use the power control wheel in our discussion.
0: Was there anything about the other two wheels, the post separation? Honestly,
1: I have not been exposed to the ch- children one. Uh huh. So could could you? Sure.
0: So some of the things that I think are either different or in addition to the tactics that are used to exert control and power over one's romantic partner. Differs when it comes to children. Mm-hmm. So, what's similar is that you could use physical and sexual violence against not just the mother but the children. So okay. that's similar. So, though that you know the the tactic of physical and sexual abuse and coercion using harassment and intimidation that's similar as well. Right. But what's different is undermining the protective parent's ability to parent.
1: Ah, oh, because see.
0: a protective parent if the child needs to prioritize schoolwork or physical needs or if there's a physical disability or emotional disability, not letting the protective parent take care of those needs and address those needs. um, And interfering with that relationship or that bond is is a way to exert power and control over the children.
1: Right, that's that's something that you talked about in the in episode 19 when we were uh when the, you guys spoke about the separation of children where where the father would transfer their child to another another school thus maintaining the control in that situation so yeah so and 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 taking away the ability for the mother to take care of their child that way Yeah
0: yeah so that that's disrupting the relationship with the children and mm-hmm. also falls under the discrediting her as a mother so like right. not valuing the maternal or the protective parent relationship with the child enough to allow that bond to continue or to grow. Right. So the example you're giving is when I was speaking with Lisa Fischel-Walovic, I was sharing an anecdote about how it's a typical abuser tactic to have when there's either joint legal custody or if the abuser has custody... right. And the abuser has determination around education correct yes they use education to trump parenting time with the other parent right And so the abuser will often, if they're well off enroll the child or children in, in boarding, boarding school, school out of state, which would then prevent the protective parent from having regular visitation with the child
1: right and the
0: ex the excuse is that's their educational. Right as a as a parent over that legal jurisdiction, you know, right. of of education, and that's something that is more important than having you know the child the, child, see the, you know, the parent. the
1: protective parent right, which I, I find that awful. How people don't either don't see that or ignore that, or is it even brought up during court? Uh, I mean, it seems pretty obvious well, to us, but I don't know. Yeah,
0: I mean, these are these are. Again, coercive control tactics that are hard to recognize by
1: people who by people who are not in the,
0: trained in understanding domestic violence right and coercive right. control, which isn't even part of the law as something to be used to protect survivors right um, right now, the laws are around you know physical assault and if there's and, and sexual abuse and rape, so those are the kinds of laws, you know, the criminal code. Right. But if but if a, an abuser were to, let's say, steal the identity of the or use the identity of their partner and create credit cards and run up the debt, that's something that one can say could be identity theft. Right. But it's not something that's easily prosecutable. Because of the proximity of, of the, the abuser to, to, the, the, yeah. to the
1: person yeah, to the victim.
0: So, yeah. And it's not like stranger identity theft.
1: Because it's your own spouse. And yeah, so, so then there's a
0: lot of things that you can do to a stranger that would be held, you know, you would be held accountable for then, yeah, yeah. at a criminal level that you couldn't do that you can do with your spouse, rather.
1: I, I did not know that. Yeah. Actually. So even
0: with for so just to finish the Power and control wheel for the child. Mm-hmm. The two other things I wanted to touch upon sure. is withholding financial support um, and endangering children. So putting children in appropriate like situations where they're subject to unnecessary risk or harm, physical harm. Right. So one example could be you know feeding age inappropriate food to kids. So you could like be giving alcohol? no, no, no. You could be giving, for example, like. You could be giving something like a bagel to a baby that doesn't have teeth.
1: And so that would
0: be something that technically it's okay. You're making a bad choice, but that's a choking hazard. You know, if the child doesn't have the ability to do that, that
1: person in in, in danger. In danger,
0: in theory. But then it's kind of like a gray area because the protective parent doesn't think that that's appropriate, recognizes it's a risk. But you, as the abuser, you kind of go. Go straight to the line, but you don't go over it of what's you know what's acceptable, right? In order to number one upset the other protective parent, and also to show so, that you have power and dominion over their lives and choices. So the
1: abuser threatens to feed the child. No, we'll
0: actually feed the child these things, and you, as a protective parent, like have
1: to be there. Have to
0: just accept it because it's not like it's against the law. Right, but but, is is it? I mean, I don't. You know, or maybe like like if you were to put your child in the back of a car and they don't have a seatbelt, that's against the law because we have because we have seatbelt laws now. Right, but if all of a sudden, for whatever reason, in our deregulatory environment, it were to be uh, no longer law one day, but we all know that it's safer to have seatbelts. Right. That I could see an abuser
1: using doing that, as that a tactic,
0: using that as a tactic, or, or
1: or that, or back when we didn't have uh, those laws, if the, the situation happened then, then that would be a tactic that they would use. So it would be just these manipulative ways that they would find to to put the child in danger, but that is not technically legal. Illegal, okay, yeah, that or, makes sense. Or now.
0: age inappropriate kind of like showing violence or s- sexual films. Or to a a younger child, that might be kind of questionable. Like if the child is under thirteen, but you're showing
1: rated R movies, seventeen, yeah,
0: rated R movies, that might be something that you might not like. But it's not just one act; it's a series of acts.
1: Right, it's a pattern. It's a pattern, right? right? And then
0: withholding financial support happens Mm -hmm. a lot as well. Where especially as kids get to be college age, then the abuser, if they're still in the picture, can use money to sort of you know, emotionally blackmailed the child right. to do certain things. Right. Like so, to
1: do this and and then you could use the car or... Or, or
0: no. Like I remember when I was, this is, a, you know, in college, I was in a relationship with someone mm-hmm. whose father emotionally blackmailed him by saying, if you don't do X, Y, Z with me or do X, Y, Z period, then I'm not going to give your mother child support.
1: Your mother child support. Yeah.
0: So I won't give... I won't help her financially as I'm legally obligated to do.
1: <laughs> wow, that's that's an awful person.
0: So it would hurt the mother, or it'll
1: it'll also hurt, hurt him. him, right? Yeah,
0: or if you don't do X, Y, Z, sometimes it's more direct. I'm not going to pay for X, Y, Z college could be one, right? Um, but usually nice. it's related to the other
1: parent. Oh, so they use the child to hurt the other parent and maintain control over the the, the, the mother. Right. I see, right? Right that that. That's, that's that's.
0: So these are all tactics that,
1: that
0: are not illegal, right? But they happen. But an
1: abuser can can use to and, manipulate, and people don't
0: recognize it. So when when it happens as a survivor, mm-hmm. and it comes in aggregate, in addition to all the other tactics, right? It's something that's really hard to
1: recognize. Get, get
0: courts and authorities to. To do something about
1: I would say especially if it's something that it's that that it's one thing that by itself won't necessarily count as, as as something that's abusive, but when you see that it's a pattern, I think that's that that's where it's just that much more egregious that that's that's how it would uh that's how it would count and I agree with the uh, the abusiveness of showing your child inappropriate films. And that happens even in, in movie theaters where I just, just think it's awful. Why would parents do that?
0: Yeah, or if it's a scary film.
1: <laughs> or if it's a scary film. It doesn't film. have to
0: be violence or, or sex. It could just be like something where there's a
1: scary... Atmosphere and like jump scares and yeah, things like or that. Yeah,
0: or there are monsters right. you know, that the child doesn't know how to process. Right,
1: right. It's not age appropriate. Yeah, I, Yeah. I hope people can recognize something. The yeah, all these things, and it's a good idea that you're talking about it, so our listeners can can really recognize these as well.
0: Do you remember the conversation that I had with Laura about the NFL and the culture of misogyny there?
1: Could you remind me? A little sure. Bit?
0: So I was, I w- we were talking about misogyny in general, mm-hmm. and I cited the example about how that happened during that week to have heard an interview with Deborah Epstein, a former consultant to the M- NFL on domestic violence. She's a law professor who resigned and she was being interviewed and gave an example of how wives of current and former NFL players shared experiences with her about domestic violence and their the broader culture of the NFL of misogyny looks the other way, which mm-hmm. is why she resigned as a consultant. Right. And the example that she gave, which I cited in the interview with Laura incorrectly, so I want to just make sure that I'm I'm giving the full information right. um, I have now. Got it. Is a woman told Deborah Epstein about a wives lunch that the Professional Football Association puts on. And so women are invited to this very posh restaurant, they mm-hmm. eat lunch. They get designer swag that they get to take home with them. And then someone comes and speaks from the professional football um, association and talks about little things like, this is a quote from the interview with Deborah Epstein. There will be nights when your husband comes home from practice and is interested in having sex and you may not be. And that is a moment when we recommend to you that you remember what your husband is doing to support your family and think about that, unquote. So this is what the Professional Football Association tells the wives of the NFL.
1: Right, I I think I've heard heard about that before. That is just astonishing.
0: (laughs) Yes, it is. And so can you imagine if you're a wife of someone who we just putting aside whether or not he's abusive.
1: I mean, you, know, that's, yeah, not, just, you don't have just control Just being a wife your- in that
0: culture, like all the other kinds of rena- relationship dynamics that may not be healthy, you don't have a space to actually speak out against.
1: I would be interested in knowing what the reaction to... To this was coming from the other wives. Do they think it's just oh yeah yeah I agree with that and we clap our hands and to to to, to what what they said or or I mean it, that is just awful and really blatantly just just appalling. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I and I think you know that just speaks to our that speaks to the culture the, the culture of sports and rape from the hunting ground. Documentary, right. which was campus sexual assault and rape.
1: Mm-hmm. There was
0: a lot of, there were a lot of examples in that film of star athletes at these colleges who had been accused of sexual assault and rape, right? And the schools looking the other way because these were people that were bringing in a lot of money,
1: right? So to, they were a whole
0: enterprise, basically,
1: right? So and there's this culture of entitlement. They're they're like, well, you know, this is what I deserve, and I could do that because uh, I can. And And the whole system comes together to
0: protect the rapist.
1: Right. In this case, yes. And I, I hope people can recognize this and in and, and and the voices of those who are are abusing their allies could, could could hopefully be heard. I I mean that that is appalling and I I'm glad to at least see that other people are listening to this and, and, and calling it out for what it is. It's just outright abuse. It's just something that can't be um, ignored.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think with the NFL White Player Association example, there's, you, I don't fault someone for wanting to engage in a profession that they enjoy, that they're good at, right? Um, where they make money and they're rewarded financially for it,
1: right? But, but I,
0: I think there's also responsibility for speaking out when there's behavior or a culture that. Doesn't conform to your values. Right. That there's a responsibility that those individuals have to the larger community as role models to the boys and girls, you know, who are watching these games
1: and and
0: viewing these players as role
1: models. Right. So they look up to them. It's it's kind of like the the whole scenario where the child is seeing the father abuse be abusive both to the, to everyone in the family and then the child, the, if, if it's a boy, then fee- or if it's a girl, they would feel like, oh, well, this is how things are. And then this is how it, it should be. And so when they grow older, they're going to feel like this culture is okay. I think this, it, this isn't just isolated to, well, obviously it's not a, just isolated to sports culture. I mean, it happens. like you said, in campuses. I mean, if, most recently, we heard about this whole Kavanaugh situation, where he—it seemed like he lived in a place where that was the culture. It was entitlement of these white males during college, where they felt they could do all these abusive things to to these women, and and to have to have a woman being called out in in a negative way and, and and for him to lie about it but that's a separate issue it's just i think that's that's the culture in college itself and i don't i don't know if he's involved in any sports but that's that that culture of entitlement like he, he these are things that these these privileged people feel that they have they have access to and and to say otherwise is 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 to them very counter to them. So, I guess they, so it's, it's, it's good that we're pointing this out and and, and hope um, more of us do so.
0: And I just want to close before we move on to the next episode with an example from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's book, Dear Eijiawele, or A Feminist Manifesto and 15 Suggestions. And her seventh suggestion is that we never should speak of marriage as an achievement for women and girls. And we should find ways to make clear that marriage in and of itself should not be an achievement, that marriage can be happy or unhappy um, and, and and not to condition girls to aspire to marriage because we don't condition boys to. And so by definition, both, both parties come to that relationship already in an unequal distribution of power because the institution matters more to one than it does to the other,
1: huh. and That's, and so
0: so the example with the NFL women, uh, the wives is
1: that, sort of speaks
0: to their valuing of their status as a wife,
1: right? That they should be grateful for what they have. So this is what you owe, right? Right. right.
0: And and rather than seeing the relationship as one of equals, and that they have a right to say no if their husband comes home and wants to do something that they're not not interested in and they have a right to say no and and still be okay with that
1: right i football player but well it just by the looks of this it looks like it, that's the culture and more often than not that does happen so i'm i'm curious just off the top of my head this thinking was the same does the culture the same back when There were arranged marriages. Was this something that that also happened? I mean, it seems like well, yeah. I think with arranged marriages, by definition, it would be. It's a transfer of power because it's transactional. Yeah, yeah. So you're the property. You're the property. Yeah. So a woman was treated as property. That's so it's even worse. Well, just just as bad.
0: And our laws today, marriage laws, still are based on property laws. Oh,
1: wow. Okay, (laughs) that would work.
0: So let's move on to the next episode, episode 19 Mm -hmm. with Lisa Mm Fischel-Walovic. She wrote a book this past spring called Traumatic Divorce and Separation, The Impact of Domestic Violence and Substance Abuse in Custody and Divorce. Was there anything about that conversation that spoke to you?
1: Right. So we we kind of already touched upon the conversation that we were having earlier about the uh, the the parental alienation. I don't think we 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 specifically said parental alienation, but uh, we talked about how the abusive person in the relationship, especially if they're a wealthy family, that they could t- if they have control over the education, that they could take away other rights from the from the woman. I think that's that's just awful. But one of the things that um, I also appreciated from Lisa was the amount of research that she did in in her book. And um, what we learned from that research, how how separating children from the parent affects the parents as well. One of the takeaways I think from this is that we should be looking at what the child's needs are, and not what the individuals, uh, the, the individual parents want. So you, you're looking out for the, for the best in what the child needs and wants. So, right. So, that's,
0: so don't put parents' rights over children's safety.
1: Exactly. So. I, I hope that the courts can take more of that into account. So,
0: well, what I thought was special about my conversation with Lisa was the fact that she has, prior to her becoming an attorney and representing survivors, she actually had um, a prior uh, career working as a social worker.
1: Right.
0: So she has that clinical experience and lens for understanding trauma. And we talked a lot about how trauma shows up both in survivors as well as in children. And I think one of the examples that um, Lisa and I talked about was something in her book where she talks about a teenager or mm-hmm. in a you know preteen, how that set of years and that period for children is very complicated because they're going through so many physiological, biological, emotional changes. Right. But also if they happen to be in a situation where their parents... That that child's parents is undergoing a traumatic divorce and separation mm-hmm. that sometimes or often she's seen examples where that teenager can not speak out against the abuser right. but actually want to be with an abuser mm. because
1: that's the safest it's a,
0: it's a safer person they know that they don't want to be rejected and it's safer to Reject this, the protective parent who's mm-hmm. always going to be there, right? Rather than the one that you're uncertain of. It's kind of whose like, love is conditional,
1: basically. Right, right. It, it maybe the child feels like there's more control in that situation than in, in in than siding with the the victim. I think you could compare that to a bully in school. If a child is is being bullied. I would assume that many children would side with the bully because at least I'm not going to get abused. So that way, you know, I'm doing the abusing and there is some power to do that, to, to that. So then there's, there's that, that power of like, even if it's, I think power comes with control and a lot of people feel safe when they're in control as opposed to not being in control. So I think that's, that, that, that's where that comes from. And it's just an awful situation because it's just making The woman in this case or the person who's being abused in a situation of even less power because now you have the child against against you, quote unquote, against you, which I don't think that that it means that the child is against you. It's it's just more of the child being in a situation where they just they just feel safer, feel safer. And it's an illusion because it's it's not. Really, safety because the abuser has the control in that situation because he could at any moment decide. Well, no, this is not what I want. Uh, you're not having that, and, and so it's just it's just an awful situation.
0: Yeah, and I think also there's the risk that Lisa goes into more in her book. We didn't talk about this as much in our conversation, but the risk that the child, um, if they're choosing during that very sensitive time. To be with an abuser, that they can be the child can be conditioned to being used to aligning with power and not have uh, the opportunity to really work through those dynamics. Right in in the relationship between the parent and the child, Mm -hmm. as well as the two parents, and then replicating that later on in their future romantic relationships or right. other other rom-
1: relationships. Right. So it'll be worse in the future. You know, I it, the other thing that related to the same topic, when you guys talked about anger, I do think, and this is something that I see with a lot of people, including people that are close to me, males who use anger to have control. I think this is a tactic that they use because it's kind of it, like you guys said. It's it's a selective anger. They're not they're not angry all the time for every reason. Because when it comes to a situation where they're in a in a situation with authority, they're not going to use that anger. They're not they're not stupid. But I think it comes. I think, and this this is something that I, I I'm I'm assuming I have no statistics or anything to back this up. But I would think it comes from a a place of fear on the part of the abuser. Like they fear. So if they have anger, that'll be t- them taking control of the situation. So in, in, in whatever situation, if they're, if they're in the situation with their, with their wife and they feel and they're in the wrong, instead of admitting to it, because that would be incongruent with what, how, how they feel, if they, if they have that anger that they express, it kind of like makes them feel like they're in control. And I think that's why the anger management doesn't work
0: well it also serves as intimidation as an intimidation tactic and it helps to quash any opportunity to address what the partner may have to want to hold them accountable to right so if there's behavior that they've engaged in that is quote unquote wrong they get to use anger to sort of deflect right and 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 as a response to being wrongly accused so right. to
1: speak Right, but what I 'm saying is that they, it maybe it initially comes from fear for, or or fear of not being in control. I mean, but I, I think a lot of them wouldn't admit to say that they're fearful
0: or fear of being wrong or fear
1: okay. of, of of being exposed of being exposed right, right, so just as that attacking them, and that's a tactic that I think is used even a lot in the political climate. You have people that are being accused of things. And then they're like, no, you're wrong. Or, or, or that, that's, that's like this, this, that that quote unquote fake news. It's it's just this, this lashing out against things that contradict your worldview. So that is, uh, that's just awful. I just hope that people are able to recognize this and, and, and just, and people in the media, I, I think it's important for that to be called out. So hopefully, hopefully that will change slowly. I think it will.
0: What about episode twenty? My interview uh, was with was Rosara. T-
1: yeah, yeah. So that's that's. I I do like these uh, survivor stories because it gives us a, a view of of what that person is going through, and she really gives us a, a taste for what. Just like when we were talking about the uh, sports culture, you have this police officer culture where this is the definition of being in control, right? This is their job. Their job is that they have to be in control. and We keep on hearing in the news all these situations where uh, police officers unnecessarily abuse their power and they just really do awful, just horrendous things all because, and I would say again, fear, because they fear. And this fear comes from anywhere, but they feel like they have to have this control. So then this, this, this kind of behavior is just expressed both in their job and apparently a lot of times it happens with their family lives. And this woman, it's just awful to hear what she had to go through. I mean, for having your retina detached, it's, and for then it not to be recognized by other people as, as, as abuse, it's, it's just awful.
0: Yeah, I think Rosara really spoke to me when she talked about the quote-unquote code of silence mm-hmm. in law enforcement. Right. Because I feel like that code of silence extends beyond law enforcement. It, there's so many different cultures and systems where there's a code of silence. There's a code of silence in sports we talked about, right? right? College sports, there's a code of silence in so Penn State is an example. Right. Code of silence in the Catholic
1: Church. Right. Right. right? All these all these areas where power is expressed in one way or another it, there's this code of silence to maintain that status quo which i with with people like uh, rosario she's uh she's she's bringing that to light one of the things that she mentioned though was that the there were people who who kind of recognized it but didn't do anything about it and it's not just strangers but the i was it was it the mother-in-law that um, I, I'm not. I'm, I don't the, the sister-in-law. Oh, the sister-in-law, right? That she she recognized it, but then it's like, oh, just just let it be, or just.
0: I think. Well, there was also I. I think what struck me about Rosara's story was that there was a lot of self-doubt and self-blame
1: on her part. On
0: her part, yeah, and and it sort of formed the narrative that she told she. Told herself while she was in that relationship, where she kept questioning, you know, and taking like, responsibility for her husband's ex husband's actions, right? And the fact that you know, the culturally, there was this also this larger narrative that she said she didn't think she was good enough,
1: right? That she felt lucky. Oh, just like the the football situation, right? Where she was like, well, you know, this guy was amazing, and and I I felt like I didn't deserve him because I had two kids. And so then this abuser just you know wanted to have somebody to control and this was he wasn't really looking for a wife he was looking for a slave.
0: Right. So she had three she had three kids, one was a baby. Right. And she saw her children as detracting from her status, I guess, right? Right.
1: right. And devaluing devaluing, her yeah.
0: And so I think that really colored her
1: choices that she made.
0: And you know? her and her judgment and analysis around what was happening to her because she she felt like, and I think this is a very common narrative Mm -hmm. that no one else will want me.
1: Right. Now I've, I, I have spoken to a couple of people who do feel that way. It's like, Oh, well I have kids and, and you know, who's going to want me or what am I going to do? Like they do feel devalued. And I I hope whoever's listening to this for you're not devalued. If you have uh, children, it's just, it's just a narrative you shouldn't tell it yourself.
0: Yeah, so right. So. so hopefully that that conversation was able to really help listeners who identified with Rosara's sort of stream of consciousness that she was her story that she was repeating be something that can can um sort of stop that narrative and right. and break it and and really help you question why you have these ideas and um, who's defining these these values and making these judgments and and whether they're valid or not
1: absolutely I mean she she's very well accomplished she I mean she wrote this book and and she's bringing awareness. It's someone that I hope we all value in in our society, and we're glad to have her.
0: Yeah, so. it it takes a lot of courage to speak out against abuse in general Absolutely. but especially against systems like the law enforcement right. taking on a whole major city in the in the country and yeah exposing their covering up of her case.
1: I mean it's by no means the safest thing to do so it's very admirable that she's doing uh something like this. So I I I really hope that um our listeners take her Story and find it inspirational.
0: Our final story is episode 21 Mm
1: -hmm. Jordan
0: Survivor Story series with Jordan. Yep, he grew up in Dallas, Texas, in a fundamentalist Christian home. He was the second out of eight children, right? He grew up with the teachings of the Institute and Basic Life Principles, which listeners might be aware of or might have heard from the TLC. Duger family, nineteen kids and counting. It's the same ministry. He even met the the minister, um, Bill Gothard, oh. who we talked about okay. in the in the episode as well. Right. So, what, what, were, what were your thoughts around Jordan's story? Um, so and his
1: journey. I think this perfectly encompasses what we were talked about earlier about how the effect of the child uh, of the child. In their early years as affected by the abuser, we listen to how he made money because of his skills for his father, basically, and just the financial abuse in this case, uh, case with the with the wheel that you mentioned it's the same you have it's actually the perfect example, so we see this and we see how his life was affected in such a powerful way and I as 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 he as hopefully many other survivors do will hopefully be successful and he seems to have lived a very eventful life afterward. So from from moving out on his own in New York City, you have to be very brave to do that coming from where he came from. Not everybody survives something like this, so it's something that that's again admirable and someone to look up to.
0: Yeah, I think I was really struck by the level of exploitation that he experienced by his father for being well in general for 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 being homeschooled and not really you know having as he said access to quality education, education right? right so there's that but then then to sort of be taken out of school and to be made a eventually a primary
1: Caregiver of the whole, money of the, earner of the whole. Yeah,
0: household. yeah. He was the primary wage earner for the family right. as a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old kid. Right. And so that really, like you said, it speaks to the power and control wheel for children. Right. It was also sad to hear about how his mom
1: supported was a, father. Was complicit. Yeah, complicit, right. That, that's a better word for it. Again, it can come from fear. Fear, fear is a difficult, tricky thing. It, in one way, it, it helps us conserve or or save ourselves from certain things, but in, in another way, it, it it prevents us from doing other things that are that would benefit us. She, I'm sure, she was also looking out for the whole family because it's not just them. So, she was depending on on the income from from her son as well. So that's something that I think. I think uh, it, it can't be. It, it, there's no easy answer to, to to this.
0: The analogy that I thought was really great and apt is recently, in light of the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearings, mm-hmm. Eve Ensler, a very well-known feminist and activist, mm-hmm. writer of the Vagina Monologues, she wrote a piece t- to Time magazine recently called a letter to white women who support Brett Kavanaugh. Okay. And she talks about it's you know, people who follow her know that she was sexually abused by her father and physically abused by him when she was growing up and and that her mother didn't protect her. And in fact, her mother sided with her father hmm. as many women do who are in that situation because they themselves are being controlled because they or the father and and the abuser is the breadwinner,
1: right?
0: So basically, Eve said that her mom sided with her father because of her need to survive, and because the reality of what was happening in front of her was so terrible, it was easier to look away, and not see, which is basically a, she's describing a trauma response,
1: right?
0: And of course, there's the cultural programming of not never being brought up to question a man, and she was taught to serve and make men happy and trained to not believe women. That's what our culture does, right? Right. And so ultimately what she said in this piece, Eve Ensler wrote, is that after her father died, after Eve's father died, Mm -hmm. her mom was able to finally acknowledge the truth of her childhood and ask Eve for forgiveness. And she acknowledged to Eve how she had sacrificed her, her daughter, right? For security and comfort. For herself. Yeah. And so I feel like that really was reminiscent of what Jordan's mom did too, probably. Right. You know, growing up, being in a situation where this all-powerful, in quotes, man, and who's citing the word of God. Right. Right. And the Bible justifying his position and authority. Um, so there's like two levels of hierarchy that you have to fight against. And, and so the mom had to also look the other way
1: for, her for a similar
0: situation that happened in Jordan's family.
1: Right, right. It's really difficult to to think of what is it that these abusers are thinking. And then you you have again I, I I bring it back to fear because you have Trump saying things like, "Oh, anybody could be accused. Any what your boys, they're going to be accused of of sexual of something sexual like I, I, nobody's safe." So you have this fear instilled in like, oh, these women, they're going to say that we did something that we didn't do. And it's just like, it's like, that makes absolutely no sense. Statistically, that's a very rare occurrence, but this is the narrative that they're being fed. A lot of people just see this and they're like, oh, well, yeah, he's right. Or or yeah, there's fear. Or maybe some some young boys will, will have this. And, and it's just another tactic that they're using to just maintain that control. I really don't know. And I guess that that does give us an explanation into the women who support these abusers that, again, it comes from fear and it's in some way they feel protected. And I say they feel protected because they're not really protected. They're, they still have this abuser in their life that has control over who they are and well, has control over their resources, everything. And at any moment they could just snap. Well, either way, and they in many ways they could be consistently abusing them and, and, and hurting them in, in, in all these different ways that it's just, it's difficult to see, I would say.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's an underlying theme of also trauma, you know, not recognizing and underestimating the impact of trauma in our lives. Right. And, and like Eve was saying with her mom, she needed to look the other way because it was too much to admit for her own, her mother's survival Right. that she had to deny and not not acknowledge what was happening to Eve.
1: Right. So she had to, yeah. I right? mean, it's traumatic just to look at something like that. Now, can you imagine poor Eve having to go through that and the mother?
0: Uh, and and then maybe being in the position where you're not empowered to actually act or help. Right. So what do you do? So you have to pretend that it's not happening. Right. Right. And so I think a lot of the people out there who who are acting in ways that are, not aligned to their principles or espoused values, they're doing so out of survival. right? And, and it, it really is a trauma response. Absolutely. And so helping, helping to develop this literacy around trauma mm-hmm. and what trauma looks like, I think is really important. So one example that I want to give is Lady Gaga was on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And she was talking about her film, her latest film, A Star is Born, but she, when asked about the whole Kavanaugh hearings, she talked about trauma and how Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's response was clearly a trauma response. Right. And I thought that it was very eloquent the way she was able to articulate that you can, have, you can give details the way that she did and leave other things out, but still have that be a valid experience and memory right because the, of the way the brain imprints trauma and and so i think you know we don't have enough of a cultural literacy around trauma and and so very often when survivors speak the instinct is to question and discredit but if we understood how trauma works we would see that gaps in memory or gaps in details are consistent
1: with with a person who has experienced trauma right this this Intense event happen, and you're like that's what your mind is focused on. It's not focused on what you ate that day or 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 any of the of the details. I mean, yeah, especially for the women who support Kavanaugh. If the statistics are hold true, one in four women have been abused. If those any one of those women have been through something like that, I'm pretty sure that they'll understand. You can't really bring up all these details. And, and yeah, I'm pretty sure that many women would be able to relate to her story. So. Yeah. And,
0: and then just, you know, the fact that Dr. Ford said that what she remembers so clearly was the quote unquote, uproarious laughter, right? Yeah. Of, the people in the room. I think that's very consistent with it's very believable and very credible because that's something that you would not expect that would be very even more traumatizing of when course. you're being exploited. Right. For people to be mocking it, making fun of it and, right. and diminishing it in that Absolutely. way, you would
1: remember to be in a position of so little power like you can't do anything. And I can only imagine what she would have to go and the experience of many women who have to go through something like that. So I hope they take her story into account. And and even though it didn't turn out the way that most of us wanted to, I think uh, this is being recognized by many people as a sign that, that it's something bad that we have to pay attention to. It's something that we have to do something about.
0: I hope you're right, Michael. I hope this is a cultural watershed moment for us. I thought that over 20 years ago, I thought that the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas hearings would be That was very much something that imprinted me in my early adulthood. So now, you know, this is a different situation. It's, We're in a different moment in time culturally, but also the two players who are involved are both white. So I think that creates a different level of
1: engagement and
0: the racial dynamics, you know, sort of gives it more visibility as well. And and hopefully Dr. Ford, more credibility. It was funny because the reason I mentioned their race is it was also an SNL's weekend update where they referenced that this time it would be different because the two players are both white. (laughs) So I actually thought that too. So let's let's hope that this is a moment where the response will actually generate lots of engagement, lots of activism,
1: mm-hmm. a
0: lot more people wanting voting. to learn, yep, and voting. So within a month That's we're going right to have the midterm now. elections. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed and let's get active to continue to go out there and make a difference.
1: Absolutely, let's do that.
0: All right, thank you Michael. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at K-A-N-D-U-I-T Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.